Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Wednesday, April the 26th, 2023. It is currently 1229 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. I stressed it's Wednesday because Wednesdays are always just crazy for me. When you're when you're a pastor of a little, 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 little small church in the middle of nowhere, Texas, you really never know how Wednesday nights are going to go. Uh, so, so I know I need to be preparing for that, looking to what I'm going to be doing, uh, you know, tonight at Victory Baptist Church. But I also know that I've got to finish something. And, and I, and I hate this feeling that I have right now. Okay. So we've been, obviously, this is a part of the Bible study exercise podcast series. For those who may be just tuning in for the first time, the Bible study exercise series is designed to get you up off the couch to a table, studying the Bible for yourself. We get, I give you homework. I give you assignments. There is curriculum. Sometimes we attach a PDF file that we want you to read. We may point you to a book. We have you listen to other sermons. Uh, we, we really want you involved in actually doing the Bible study. I turn on the microphone. Sometimes I don't actually do teaching as much as I say, here are your three assignments or or what about this, or what about that, or it could be this, it could be that, trying to get you not just listening passively, but actively involved. So we've been working on the subject of temptation because we're in the middle of a seven-week study on the subject. We've worked on James chapter 1. I think we did a relatively decent job. We worked on Deuteronomy chapter 8, Matthew chapter 4. I think we did I, I think we did a, I, I think a, a fair job. I think a good job. I think I, I think I handled that relatively well. Um, I thought it would spark a little bit more conversation, but we worked on Deuteronomy chapter eight, Matthew chapter four. This week, you're supposed to be working on Deuteronomy chapter six in Matthew chapter four. I haven't done much teaching or mentioned it, but I, I mean, I've given you, I've given you your work. I've told you what to do. So hopefully you've been working on it and, 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 and hopefully it's been a beneficial study. If everything works out correctly tonight at Victory Baptist Church, we'll probably do some, well, I don't know. We need to do some work on Deuteronomy 6 and Matthew 4. We desperately need to. <laughs> but. We have kind of this Song of Solomon issue that's kind of, that's kind of moved to the forefront. So maybe I'm gonna, I may show up at Victory Baptist Church and like everyone grab a Bible dictionary. Let's do a book background, book overview of the Song of Solomon. Let's go. Maybe I do that. Maybe, maybe, I mean, it can't hurt, right? And then we'll do Deuteronomy 6. And Matthew 4, maybe Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. You can, you let me, let me know. I'm always waiting for that feedback though. That's the, that's the one thing is so much of the Bible study exercise really is designed to get the people involved, right? So when people are sending me questions or, or struggles or things, that's usually sparks how I want to go in and, and continue the Bible study exercise for the week. But I hope you're working on Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 4. But back to Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4, I don't know if you remember, we did kind of a sermon review. 
And we made it about halfway. Now, the sermon was supposed to be about Deuteronomy 8. Really, it dealt with a little bit of adversity. Um, and, and then we, after about an hour and 30 minutes of sermon review, finally, <laughs> uh, the pastor was like, okay, now we can get to the text. It was like 30 minutes of, let's almost 30 minutes of talk about adversity before he ever actually got to Deuteronomy chapter eight. Now we, we, we know that it raised serious questions, right? Because remember our definition of temptation, we define temptation as not only as an enticement to evil, it is a trial, right? Enticement and evil, trial, difficulties in life that lead us to not think, speak, feel, desire, or act in a way that is consistent with God's word. This occurs in order to test us, to reveal to us what is really going on inside of us. And because we included in the word temptation, enticement to evil, and a trial that they work together to get us to go against God's word, well, then that leaves lots of questions about God's involvement, because there is no question God is involved in our trials, there's no, there's no question. He decrees them. He guides them. You could say he limits them. He, he permits them. Well, if God is involved in trials and trials are a part of temptation, well, then isn't God a part of our temptation? But God doesn't tempt. So then we have to go to the whole secondary cause thing. And it just, it, it, we, we still are struggling a little bit with that. But we, we were doing this sermon review. We, we talked about all of that. And then, well, we did the sermon review. We did not finish it. And then the very next day was church. So then we did like three hours of teaching on Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4. And then this week has started. Here we are Wednesday and we're getting way down the road. So I've got to circle back around and bring us back to that sermon and we got to finish the review. I know the continuity here is all broken up and I apologize for that. I love when, whenever I do a sermon review, I want to, I try my best to finish it immediately the next day, but I, the, the next day was Sunday. So Sunday school, we did Deuteronomy 8, Matthew 4. Sunday morning, Deuteronomy 8, Matthew 4. Sunday night, Deuteronomy 8, Matthew 4. There was no, there was no way to work the continuity. So Part of me almost wants to take these two sermon reviews out of the Bible study exercise and just make them their own thing, but I'm not going to do that because they the, the that sermon review the the part one we did and and now this will be part two. I mean, it was a part of the whole seven weeks. Like when someone looks back, oh, that occurred. Those sermon reviews occurred in our study of temptation. So in other words, it'll be a historical record of exactly what we did for our study on temptation. I, I kind of like that. Whether whether it's a good episode, bad episode, whether we struggle with something, whether a mistake was made, whatever, I like it to just be there because it's a record of, hey, remember that Bible study you did on Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4? Do you remember that study you did on temptation? Well, there it all is. There's the audio journey of it. Good, the bad, the ugly, the successful, and the failure. And and so I, I kind of like that. So we're going to leave this here, but we're going to circle back to the sermon and see what he's going to do with the text. I'm not going to really review everything he has said in the sermon. You can go back and just listen to And right now, I know all in the 
on the Church One app, and I think in the Sermons 2.0 app, if you look under our series, Bible Study Exercise, the temptation messages are all out of whack and they're out of order. That's what happens when you do, say, three messages in one day and a series. They're all being uploaded on the same day. So the app kind of like, well, which one goes first? Which one goes second? And it's like, no. You see, it says part 10. You see, it says part 11. That's the order they're supposed to be in. So um, sometimes I'll have to go in and change the dates to get them then to fit perfectly. So I will, uh, I'll be working on that sometime this afternoon to get these all in order. All right. But are you ready? Are you ready? Here we go. We go back to our review on a sermon someone just picked randomly for us to review. It's a sermon on Deuteronomy chapter 8. Like I said, the whole first half of the sermon really didn't have anything to do with Deuteronomy chapter 8. Raised lots of questions about adversity and trial. There was some good in it. There was some frustrating things in it. But now we're just going to set that all aside. He's about to mention the text and let's see what he does with Deuteronomy chapter 8. And you'll be able to contrast this with the three plus hours we worked on Deuteronomy chapter eight last Sunday at Victory Baptist Church. And you can listen to all of the, that teaching all right there in the Bible study exercise series. Look for all the uh, episodes, temptation part. Well, I think it's 10, 11, and 12, or maybe 11 and 12, 13. You can, you can look. You, as soon as you hit play, you, you'll know that it's being broadcast. It was bro- broadcasted from the church because you don't get the musical intro and you'll definitely hear a different sound because I'm using a lapel mic and not my podcasting mic. So you'll definitely know the difference. All right. Are you ready? Here we go. I don't, and remember how we do sermon reviews for those who've never been a part of one of our sermon reviews. I don't listen to the sermon first because I don't like them rehearsed. Like, I don't like that. It's not a production. We just choose a sermon to listen to in something related to the subject we're studying to get a different perspective, but I don't listen first. So it's like I'm listening in real time and I'm reacting in real time and you're listening with me. That's that's the vibe we try to, the, the vibe I try to present for our sermon reviews. It's like you're sitting down with me and we're, we're listening together and we're talking about it. So here we Oppression becomes my friend. Everything negative in my life can be a positive because I realize it's all to make me right with God. Well, let's look at the text so I can start preaching, all right? Deuteronomy chapter 8. We find here that there's more than one way of looking at history. This is what we may call, the. he's talking about here, the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel. But as, as you look back on the wilderness wanderings, the most obvious evaluation of the wilderness period could be that it was a monumental waste of a golden opportunity. We understand that. The children of Israel rejected crossing the Jordan River and going into Canaan land because they were afraid of the giants and they didn't believe God. And for 40 years, they had to walk in the wilderness until all of that generation died. Uh, We understand that was a monumental waste of a golden opportunity. But, however, Moses understood that the ensuing years were not all wasted. Notice the words he uses in verse number 2. 
and I read a preach from the New American Standard, he says here, God has led you in the wilderness. Do you see that? You ought to circle that. That is a different way of looking at the wilderness wanderings. Okay, now, I, I do love this. Because we emphasize, I emphasized a lot, God did the leading. God led them. Now, this still raises so many questions, right? When they came out of the promised land, right? God, let's just make sure we at least acknowledge this. God could have led them directly to the promised land, like a straight route, like straight there, go straight in. Don't wait. Don't pause. Don't send in spies. Just go in. But he, it did not, he took them into different places where they would grumble and complain because they didn't have food, didn't have water. They could have had a, a, a steady supply of food and water. Never have to worry about it. Now, he did all of these things in order to test. But remember, he knew that those tests, they would fail. And then when they failed, they are punished. So God is involved in the situation. Like, once again, I know philosophically and theologically, we'll say, well, see, but it wasn't God doing the tempting. It was the, the situation. They didn't have food. They didn't have water. It was the difficulty. That was the temptation, not God. So God was not directly tempting them. I, and I know that makes us feel better, but we have to at least deal with the fact God was indirectly involved. There's no way to get around it. And that raises questions. Why would he put them in situations where he's no, he knows they're going to grumble and complain, and he knows that he's going to punish them, resulting in the loss of life? Why would he, why would, why, why did he not just tell them, go, don't, don't wait for spies to go see the land. Just go in, just go in. Just now, just go, just go, 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 go. Because then there would have never been a problem. Now you can say, well, but it was the test to see whether they would pass it. God already knew they were going to fail it. So it, it, it again, you just have to acknowledge that somehow in failure and in sin, God's sovereign plan is at work. And I know that that makes people nervous to say, because you're like, well, wait a minute. So then you're, you're justifying. I'm not justifying sin. Sin is still sin. It is still condemned. But you can't just deny God is not involved in somehow, shape, or form. And in many cases, he could have stopped the entire thing from going wrong. But he clearly did not. But God is the one leading them. There is no question. He led them into this situation. He led them through it. Moses said, God has led you in the wilderness. God is sovereignly in charge of your adversity. Do we believe that? Do we understand that? Have we come to grips with that this morning? Now, now let, let us remember, and this is just, it's one thing to say that. Like you can sit... You can stand behind a pulpit where everyone's sitting in a pew and say, God is sovereign. He is in charge of your adversity. He allows it. He permits it. He limits it. God is in charge. And everyone in church will say, amen. But let me remind you, I know when I say this, people roll their eyes, they sigh, they get frustrated with me, but I'm just going to continue to say this. It's one thing to say it in church. It's another thing to say it to the woman who's being abused and raped on a consistent basis. Hey, 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 God's in charge of your adversity. God, God's permitting it, allowing it, 
and he's limiting it. It could be worse. It's one thing to say it in church. It's another thing to say it to a child who's being molested. It's one thing to say it sitting in church. It's another thing to say it to a child being tied up and beaten with an electric cord and burned with curling irons. It's, it's one thing to say it in church. It's another thing to say it to a family whose child was just murdered. It's one thing to say it in church. It's another thing to, to say it to a person laying in a cancer ward dying of terminal cancer slowly but surely. All of a sudden, it's easy to say God's in charge of your adversity and find great comfort in it. It, it, it is hard to understand that. Now, God is in charge. God is sovereign. I believe the scriptures teach that. I just want to make sure you understand by professing that, confessing that, declaring that, there are some very uncomfortable realities that we have to deal with in light of said truth. Now, just because a truth makes us uncomfortable and because a truth is hard to understand doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that sometimes in church, we take these philological truths, we present them in a very positive way. Hey, aren't you glad God is in charge of your adversity? And we'll say amen because that's what we're supposed to do because we're in church. But we sometimes don't think of exactly what that implies. It's something that we, all I'm trying to do is get Christians to embrace that uncomfortable reality and be willing to acknowledge it. God is sovereignly in charge of our adversity. Now listen, even when we are at fault, even when it's our fault, then I'm... Wow. Now, I do love his emphasis on the sovereignty of God here, but I mean, I just want you to think of the implications. Even when we are at fault, God is the one who's in charge. Even when our adversity is our fault, God is in charge. Now, how do, how do we understand that in relation to sin? Well, God is not at fault, but God is sovereign. Could God not have intervened? I mean, just think about it. I mean, you have to raise this question a hundred times. God, when the moment we are saved, the moment of salvation, if God can remove, could remove the sinful nature in an instantaneous supernatural act, right? Instead of imputing, a, just think about this, instead of imputing righteousness to us, which remember the entire Protestant Reformation is based off the differences between imputed and infused righteousness. At the moment of salvation, instead of imputing a righteousness to me, that just is accrediting, accrediting a righteousness to me. God could literally infuse righteousness in me, remove the sinful nature, and then I could be basically sinless. But clearly God does not remove the sinful nature, does not infuse righteousness, imputes righteousness, knowing therefore I have a sinful nature and I'm going to continue to sin. God could, re God could fix that problem instantaneously. Salvation, you are now holy. Not, not positionally, practically. That you are a new creature, the old is gone, everything is new. Not positionally, but practically. But practically, we know that is not true. Why doesn't God remove all of it? If God, God is sovereign, God is in charge. Now you say, well, it's not God's fault. I'm not trying to blame God. I'm saying, but, but it, we, we have to acknowledge 
God clearly then knows sin is going to occur. So if God knows sin is going to occur and he doesn't remove the very thing causing the sin, which is our sin nature, then somehow sin has to be a part of his plan, right? Not blaming God, not excusing anyone's sin. So please don't start emailing me saying that. I'm not. I am trying to make you deal with the realities. See, it's one thing to make a theological claim that's theoretical, and we typically make those theori- those theological claims very theori- theoretical sitting in the pew or standing behind the pulpit. But once you leave church and now you take this theological claim that's very theoretical and you try to, in a sense, take it off the shelf and you try to and put it down there into the practical life, you can go, well, this gets really complicated. This gets really confusing. But he's acknowledging God is sovereign. Over everything, over our trial, even if it's our fault, God is in charge. I'm in the wilderness. The good news is I'm spoken for, amen, as it was sung today. God doesn't abandon me in the wilderness. He is still sovereign God. And even in my fault, God leads me. Now, that doesn't give us an excuse to sin more, as Paul would say in the book of Romans, amen? It's not that we should sin more so that grace may abound. That's not it at all. But it is a way of understanding adversity. It is a way of understanding that, yes, I may be born into a, into a dysfunctional family. Uh, my, my parents may be divorced, uh, or, or we may be living in poverty, or we may not be in the best neighborhood. But that's not an excuse for not living for God. Amen? Because Hey, I, hey, look, come on, come on now. If you're going to say God is in charge, don't just put it a dysfunctional family living in poverty. Let's call, How about being molested year after year after year? How about being physically abused and tortured year after year? Come on, come on. Let's not let's not just try to, you know, make it look halfway nice. I mean, even if you're in difficulty, just just remember God's in charge. God's in charge. No, let's make, let's put it down there where some people have really experienced some horrors in life. Even in the wilderness, God is leading me. We ought not be blaming our circumstances. We ought not be looking at our situation and saying that, that, oh, look at my problems. I can't be right with God. No, friend, even in the worst valley you walk through, God can be there. Moses. Christians love that. Even in your worst valley, God can be there and he led you there. I'm being raped on a regular basis. Well, you know, God led you there. He's with you. Don't you feel better? Uh, my child was just killed by a drunk driver. God led you there. Uh, uh, don't you feel better? All I'm trying to say is we say these truths sometimes as if they are comforting, but to other people's ears, they're like, that's twisted. See, in, in our ears, because we're trained, because we're Christians and we go to church, we just immediately go, oh, that's a positive thing. That's a one. Praise be the Lord. It's wonderful. And then we say that to some people and we're shocked when they look at us like, That's the most twisted thing I've ever heard in my life. And for the Christian, they're looking at them like, what's so twisted about it? 
So your God is allowing a woman to be raped or a child to be molested, but he's there? He's controlling it? That's going to raise some serious questions. And we have to just be willing to acknowledge that. that that's all I'm saying. People get really up. See, it, it's so weird. When I bring these issues up, Christians get bothered with me and angry with me. But this is the whole thing. If we're going to study temptation, one of the issues we have to sometimes come to, to grips with is God's involvement in it. Well, temptation is an enticement to evil and it is a trial because every trial is an enticement to evil. Every trial is telling you to not think, not speak, not feel, not desire, and not act in accordance to God's word. It, it tells you to get upset, bothered, anxiety, fear, worry, bitterness. It, it, it always leads you in, 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 a, in a, it's call, it's a constant call to go in the wrong direction. Well, if we are going to say God is absolutely 100% involved and in control of trials, well, then you see how now we're, we're getting him involved in the whole temptation situation. That, that's, that's because we're studying temptation for seven weeks that we're looking at these really deep theological issues. And we're not going to, we're not going to just give you the little, you know, six ways to overcome temptation kind of lesson. We're going to deal with the real theological issues related to it. saw it that way and he was preaching to these this new generation. God was leading them. God was doing something great. The way I wrote it down is God can change your wilderness wanderings into a wilderness university. Amen? Brother Leon got it. He can change your your wilderness wanderings into a wilderness university. Well, let's make it very clear. Number one, for many of those who are wandering in the wilderness, I, I, do they graduate from the university because they're all going to die? <laughs> okay, so so now for the younger generation who came out of Egypt or were born in the wilderness, I guess maybe it could be a wilderness university. But as we sow clearly articulated in our study of Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4, whatever degree they get in the university wandering around the wilderness, it's pretty useless because they are all going to fall into sin relatively quick as soon as almost instantaneously as they get out of the wilderness and they get into the promised land and they got, look, we've got our wilderness diploma. We got our wilderness degree. I've got a PhD in wilderness wanderings. It's not only going to be a little bit of time and they're like, well, let's not drive those people out and let's not drive those people out and let's not drive those people out and we'll put those people under tri tribute and we'll, we'll start marrying uh, their women. And then, oh, and next thing you know, well, let's turn to idolatry. And the next thing you know, Israel fails, 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 fails. The generation who graduated, graduated from the wilderness university all fail the actual experiment in life. Why? Because you can learn all of these lessons in the wilderness university, but you still have a sinful nature. I mean, that's just the reality. So may, what's the question? What, so what, what's the, I guess really, and it's not what is the question. Maybe we misunderstand what the purpose of this all is. Is the purpose of all of this to go see in the wilderness, wilderness wanderings in your life, 
you learn lessons and those lessons will help you overcome. I don't know if that's the point of these stories, even though that's how it's preached. Maybe the point of these stories is time and time and time again, no matter how many laws was given to Israel, no matter how much direct revelation was given to Israel, no matter no matter how many trials, no matter how much God provided for them, no matter what was done for them, they sinned, 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 sinned over and 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 over again until we finally open up the New Testament and there is a little baby that is born and it is said of that little baby, he will save his people from their sins. And how does he save them from their sins? Not by making them better in practice, but by providing the righteousness and obedience that they never achieved or could ever maintain. He keeps the law of God and by faith, his obedience is imputed to us and that's how people are saved. Maybe the story isn't like, here are the 10 things you need to learn in the wilderness so you can overcome sin. Maybe the thing is, is that you will never overcome sin so you need to flee to the one who did. Deuteronomy 8 You can say, look, 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 they're in the university. You just get over to to Joshua and Judges. They start failing the test instantaneously. Then they're doing, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And the next thing you know, they're like, we want a king. And the next thing you know, they're, we're worshiping idols. So Deuteronomy 8 is the temptation of men who they fail. Matthew 4 is the temptation of the son of man who succeeds and passes and his obedience is imputed to those who believe and trust in him. Just a thought. God can change your wilderness wandering. See, I don't even like that word anymore. Who said they was wandering? Kind of sounds like they, they were just going in circles. Moses said God was leading them. He wasn't wandering. It was following. He had changed their wilderness wanderings into the wilderness university to teach them lessons they they could have not learned anywhere else. So the purpose was to teach them lessons they could not learn anywhere else. The only way they could learn them is for people to walk around 40 years dying. The only way... Okay, maybe you could say that's the only lessons they're going to learn, but do they learn any lessons? Because does people not realize what happens to this generation who comes out of the wilderness, who who are younger than all, they're the generation that doesn't die off. They're the generation who gets to go into the promised land. Do you remember how well that worked out? They immediately, and judges just, they, they didn't drive this person out. They immediately start disobeying. And then just look at how Judges plays itself out. They go through this never-ending cycle. Things are going good. Everything's wonderful. They become spiritually apathetic. They end up turning to other gods. They get they get brought into some form of captivity, uh, some type of servitude. God raises up a judge. The people supposedly repent. And then they go back to everything's going good. Then they go back to spiritual apathy. It's a never-ending cycle of sin, 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 sin. So what, le- by, I mean... It seems it takes them 15 minutes to forget the lessons that they learned in the wilderness. So was the purpose to teach lessons 
or was the purpose to demonstrate that no matter what God did externally to them, they continued to sin. No matter how many privileges they were given, no matter how much chastisement was placed upon them, no matter how much judgment they continued to sin, demonstrating the depravity of man and the helplessness of man. And so we better look for a solution and we don't find the solution until this little baby is born and they will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And he immediately then demonstrates his obedience to God's law right there when he's tempted in Matthew chapter four, when he is in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He passed the test. In Christ, we passed the test. The lesson learned is that no matter what we learn, we're always going to fall short. Is that not the lesson? In fact, it says there in verse number two, it was to humble them. The word humble means to afflict. And when God is the subject of this verb, humble, it is always referring to God's disciplining for educational purposes. God afflicted them. There was negativity in their life. You don't find any of this power of positive thinking. Sometimes there's power in negative things. Amen? God afflicted them. God brought negativity. God brought adversity. Why? Notice the next word in that verse redefines the word humble. To test them. He afflicted them to test them. Every time God is the subject of that word humble, it is because it's an educational humbling. It is to test them. It is to put them to the test. Welcome to God's classroom. Amen? That's what it should have said right over the entrance into the wilderness. <laughs> Welcome to Wilderness University. Welcome to God's No Child Left Behind program. <laughs> Let me tell you several lessons that they learned from Scripture. First of all, they learned that God allows adversity for exposing the wickedness of our heart. Now, I, I, I got no problem with this. I do believe God brings trials and tests to expose what is in our heart. It's a temptation. Ev that's why we count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. Because, because it's, whether it's a trial or whether it's a direct enticement to evil, they're going to reveal what's in my heart. What's going to reveal in my heart is as soon as I face an enticement to evil or as soon as I face a trial, I'm going to know, even if I don't act on it, it's going to show me what my heart wants. There's lots of things I want. I haven't acted on it yet, but there's things I want. But guess what? I know I want it. And because I want it, even though I may not have acted upon it, that should scare me to death because I know I want it. It's not like, oh, no, I'm so godly. I don't want that. But I know what I want. And I'm like, whoa, OK, I know what's in me. I know. And well, come on, come on. Don't look at me like you're all spiritual. Come on, you know what's inside of you. So I do agree. 
the trial, the, the trial, the test reveals this. It reveals this. And if, and if this doesn't demonstrate it, well, just keep reading and you get to judges, you're going to see, well, <laughs> you're going to see the evil in their heart. You're going to see how quickly they abandon God. You're going to see how quickly they don't follow God's law. That's what he said in verses 1 through 6. Notice at the end of uh, verse, verse number 2, he said that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. God will allow adversity into your life. He will permit it. He will limit it, but it's there by his permission for exposing the wickedness of your heart. Again, you got to be careful how you say that. Hey, you're being beaten and raped. Well, guess what? God's brought that into your life to expose the wickedness in your heart. You're being molested. Well, I'm sorry to say God allowed that to expose the wickedness in your heart. Now, I do believe trial can do that, but you got to be careful how you express that, right? Because you're going to say anytime someone falls into trial and difficulty, God is doing it to expose the wickedness in their heart. Well, I don't know if you've ever been abused. I don't know if you were raised in an abusive environment, but if you weren't, I guess maybe should I feel sorry for you that you didn't get all of the wickedness exposed in your heart the way other people who have been abused did? Like, you know, do, do you feel, man, I sure wish I would have been beaten and whipped with an electric cord or burned with a curling iron or, or beaten with a baseball bat or, or all the horrible things that ha- can happen to children? Uh, well, you know, I'm... I wish that would have happened to me because it could have exposed the, the wickedness of my, I wish I could have been born in some horrible country where there's violence and rape and, and poverty and famine because then my, my, my poverty, my, uh, my wickedness could be exposed. That's a big claim. I once uh, had a guy do an illustration. Uh, kind of played a little game with me. He had a lemon in his hand. And he asked me the simple question. If I squeeze this lemon, he's going to poke a hole in it and squeeze it. If I squeeze this lemon, what's going to come out of it? I'm always thankful for easy questions. Amen. I said, well, lemon juice is going to come out of there. So he squeezed the lemon. And lo and behold, he had taken all the lemon juice out of that lemon and had filled it with orange juice. And to my surprise, when he squeezed that lemon, orange juice came out. And I learned a lesson. That when God puts the squeeze on you, you may be surprised what comes out. Because what's truly in you will come out. No matter what the outside looks like. And adversity is God's way of putting the squeeze. I believe one day when we get to the judgment 
We're going to be embarrassed and shocked and amazed at how often the biggest sin that's predominant in our life, the one that grieved the Holy Spirit and quenched the Holy Spirit and hindered the effectiveness of the kingdom of God, was that constant contention of man working in their manness. Of us working in our humanity. Of what's truly in us coming out constantly. Working against the things of God. And I believe that God will put adversity in our life to squeeze all of the humanity out of us. All of my abilities. All of my wisdom. All of... All of everything I trust in, in myself. Now, okay. So God squeezes us to reveal what's in us. Okay. I, I mean, you can, you can go with that. I mean, I, I do believe that there's an aspect of that is true. I just know how utterly messed up that can sound saying to someone, hey, God's doing this to expose the wickedness in you and someone is suffering some horrible, you know, situation. That, that's hard. Like, you know, made people who've suffered and you're going to have a hard time sometimes saying those words. But uh, I do understand that there's an aspect of trial does reveal the wickedness in me. I got no problem. Now, he in a, in a roundabout way, he's kind of offering a second thing it does. God squeezes us to remove all of our dependence upon ourselves. That it, it it just drives us to realizing we're helpless, hopeless. We are we we are we are beggars. We have nothing. Now, I do believe that when you look, read the Old Testament, that's really what you're supposed to be led to, is that all of these people fail, 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 and you are supposed to be led to, well, then woe is me. I am undone. There is no hope. No one can, no one can follow your law. No one can obey it. No one can do it. And then Christ says, but I can, and I did. And if you believe in me, my obedience will be imputed to you. That, I do believe it's supposed to lead us to the end of ourselves. I, I would be in agreement with that. I would be in agreement. And, and I even would be in agreement that it does reveal what's in us. We just have to realize, though, what, what comes with that idea. All of my self-sufficiency. So that the only thing left in me is God in me. So that he can be my all in all. Friend, God will bring adversity into your life to bring you to the end of yourself as He did these people. Number two, God allows adversity to teach us that a man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Notice what He said in verse 3. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand. The man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now we find here the sharpest learning curve that they faced was one of the most basic and universal forms of human need. And that was hunger. God can sometimes use the most simplest things. 
Now, I do believe that the point that he, that God was doing in Deuteronomy 8, I do believe this. He was bringing them to realize, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're, you're going to have to trust. In other words, it's not so much bread. You're going to have to trust God's word, right? I, I brought you to positions of hunger where you would stop trusting in bread and you would trust in God's word who is going to provide you the bread and the manna and the water and everything else. In other words, are you going to trust in what you can do, what you can produce, what you can find, what you can raise, or are you going to trust in the word of God? Now, what this should bring them to the end of themselves. Now, because Deuteronomy 8 is quoted in Matthew 4, then in Matthew 4, Jesus is there, right? In Matthew 4, he quotes Deuteronomy 8 because he's being tempted. Jesus passed the test in a sense. He obeys every law of God. He do, He's tempted, but he does not sin. And so then this demonstrates that, uh, that what we must do is trust in the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. Jesus is that word. We must trust in him, trust in his word for, guess what? Our bread, our drink, are all those provisions and we have all of those provisions in Christ. They're looking for physical bread. We need the spiritual bread that once we eat of it, we will never hunger again. That is salvation. Jesus is that bread. All the things that is listed in Deuteronomy 8 that God provided for them, he provided that for them Physically, we don't look for that physical provision because obviously God does not necessarily provide in the same way that he did, obviously, here in a supernatural, miraculous way. But God provides for us spiritually bread, uh, clothing, because we're clothed in his righteousness. He, he provides the obedience. He, he provides everything we need for our spiritual lives. To teach us. In their case, it was hunger. Three lessons they learned from this. Number one, they learned that man cannot and will not survive on his own. Man cannot and will not survive spiritually on his own, right? Is that what you mean by that? Or are you mean God is so control of everything that no one survives without God? Let's see if he explains it. Bread alone is not what's going to help you live. You cannot live on bread alone. What you do, what you think, what you can do for yourself is not enough to live. In fact, that is taught even more over in verses 16 and 17 when God said, I fed you that manna in the desert, and yet you may say to yourself, it was by my power. But you learned it was not by your power. That even in the bread, God had to give it to you every day. You could never be self-sufficient. That was one lesson. Number two... We learn that man is not able to live by his senses, by what he can taste, feel, smell, see, touch. But he must live, if he's going to truly live, he must live spiritually, beyond our five senses. He must live by faith in the Word of God. He must live in another realm, a realm apart, apart from this world, in the realm of God. 
He must live by that which proceeds from the mouth of God. And those are two good lessons. But this third lesson is what I actually think it literally means. And that is this. This verse is actually a climax statement rather than a contrast statement. He's not just contrasting bread and the Word. He's literally saying everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord is what we're going to live by. It includes the declarations of God's promises, His covenants, His guidance, and the articulation of His purposes for creation and humanity. In other words, the words that promised bread in the wilderness came from the same mouth that promises much more. The focus was not on the bread. The focus was on God. Children, you learned that the same mouth that promised you bread in the wilderness is the same mouth that from it is the source of all of the answers to your problems. My friend, God will hem a man up to the Word of God so that his only hope for survival is God's Word. And then third and lastly, I believe that they learn from that wilderness university And this may be the most difficult lesson. Is that God allows adversity to establish the law of antagonism. The law of antagonism. Are you familiar with the law of antagonism? There's a law of gravity. There's a law of aerodynamics. But there is also a law of antagonism. Scientists know about this law. For without this law, birds could not fly. Without this law of antagonism, nothing could live nor grow. Without there being a negative force in your life, the positive would never be affected. Have you ever noticed that the greatest spiritual people that you and I know are the people who have endured some of the greatest adversities? Okay, now, I I, I knew because this is typical sermon template, right? Hey, 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 all of those bad things happen to you. It's the law of antagonism. See, it, it produces the greatest good. It produces the greatest spirituality. These people went through all of these trials and they turn into full blown idolaters who do what is right in their own eyes and reject God as their king and look to a man. So, I know it, it, it just demonstrates that no matter what God did externally to them, it was not going to change the depravity within them. So, the issue is they were going to need a savior, which was going to be, they needed a substitute. They needed a lamb. They needed a baby who would grow up and obey the laws that they never could keep and neither can you. 
Have you ever noticed that? And you often wonder, was it their adversities that made them so great? You see, God taught them the law of antagonism. The law that there must be problems. There must be oppression. There must be problems. There must be oppression. That, no, nothing, I mean, God could not come up with any other solution. There has to be problems. There has to be oppression. There has to be. That's the only thing that's going to work. Oh, I don't know. Or God could just remove the sinful nature. I mean, call me foolish. There must be adversity in order for us to grow on this earth. In our cursed state, in our sinful life, the only way for us to keep growing is for there to be antagonism, a negative force. The only way for us to grow, the only way for us to keep going is there must be antagonism, there must be something evil, there must be something negative. So, does God allow, does not, pro, in other words, God works things in a situation where he doesn't keep us from sin, but we sin because there's something good that comes from that sin? So, if someone falls into sin, do we say, well, that's the law of antagonism. There's got to be negative. There's got to be fall. There's got to be failure. There's got to be pain. There's got to be suffering because no pain, no gain. Is that kind of where we're going with this? He began to preach this from verses 4 all the way through the end of the chapter. I won't take time to read all that this morning. But it simply is this. As I thought about it, and, and I got to thinking about other men of God. I thought about old Moses himself. Man, there he was, born in Egypt. His parents looked at him and said, we've got ourselves a man of God. We're going to put him in the little basket and put him in the river. He was picked up by Pharaoh's daughter. And what a life. The devil bought his diapers, amen? The devil paid for his education. The devil fed his face and gave him all the food and the luxuries of the king and the pharaoh. The devil did all these things. But when it came time for Moses to learn how to be the deliverer, God had the backside of a desert waiting on him. And how did that all work out? Oh, yeah, Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land because he fails. <laughs> okay, right? 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 Hey, look at all these lessons he learned and he failed. Look at all these lessons Israel learned and they failed. Look at all these uh, lessons you've learned and you fail. So, like, how do we process that reality? thought about Peter. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. And then he went on to say, Simon, Simon. He said, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. Meaning all of you. The word is plural. Sift all of you as wheat. Satan desires to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. And that word is singular. See, Jesus said, I prayed for you, Simon, Peter, that your faith fail not. And when you are converted, that you will strengthen the brethren. So he could not have stopped Satan from doing that? Therefore, God allowed Satan to lead Peter to deny him three times? But that's all a good thing? Now that teaches us something about adversity. You see, God had designed and ordained for Peter to be the leader of the apostles. We know that. It was Peter that was to preach on the day of Pentecost. But he wasn't ready for Pentecost. He was operating in the realm of Satan sometimes, in the way he was thinking about the cross. Amen? He wasn't prepared to be the man of God. So, Satan was desiring to buffet uh, Peter and all the rest of the apostles. And Jesus said, I'm going to pray for you. But Jesus never prayed that Satan would not buffet them. and try. I want you to think of the implications. God knew what Satan was going to do. Knew Peter would deny him three times. That's a, I mean, he denied his Savior three times. We would say that's a sin. God knew sin was going to occur, allowed it to happen because ultimately good was going to come from it. Do we truly view people's sin that way? Hey, you've sinned. Like if a pastor sins, we won't, we say excommunicate, disqualify, get rid of, but maybe that is God's way of equipping, preparing, and growing them. I'm not saying it should excuse sin in any way, shape, or form. I'm saying, how do we process this understanding? God God didn't pray for Satan not to do it. He didn't stop Satan from doing it, but knew that this was going to lead Peter to being ready to preach. Well, so, so he had to sin to be ready to preach? to sift them as wheat. Never once did Jesus say, I'm going to bind Satan so he can't mess with you. Never once did he say, I'm going to protect you so Satan can't touch you. No, Jesus understood that in order to get Peter ready, Peter needed to be sifted a little bit. Amen? He needed to go through the fire. He needed to go through a wilderness university. He needed for Satan to be loosed on him. Not possessing. Can't possess a believer. Amen. A Satan can't come in. The Holy Spirit's in you. The Holy Spirit is controlling your life. Satan can't control your life. He's just a delivery boy. He just comes from the editor with a message. And the message is, there's some things in you that aren't of God. And I'm going to buffet you. And I'm going to oppress you. And I'm going to get you on your knees before God. He's just a delivery boy. Jesus said, I'm not going to pray that he don't 
mess with you, Peter. I'm not going to pray that you don't have adversity. I'm not going to pray that you don't fail and mess up. But I am going to pray that your faith fail not. I am going to pray that in the midst of it all, you're going to get closer to God. So that when you're converted, when you're changed, when you're made more like me, you will strengthen your brethren. See, I've got a purpose for you, Peter. But first, you've got to graduate from Wilderness University. So does God have a purpose when we fail to temptation? Now, remember, we're, we're looking all of this in the context of temptation. Deuteronomy 8 connected to Matthew chapter 4. Therefore, it's connected to temptation in that sense. Deuteronomy 8 deals with trials and difficulties, which the word temptation in- includes that. So we've connected it. Does God have a purpose in someone failing to temptation and sinning? And do we almost circumvent that. Like here, God has a purpose in temptation and all we do is just go feel bad, shame, humiliation, embarrassment. We're going to gossip, slander, tell the whole world about you, publicly humiliate you and destroy you. But wait a minute. What about if God has a purpose in it? We can't have a purpose in it now because you've sinned and you've committed whatever sin it was and you're finished. Well, maybe, maybe do we see it? Are we to look at it in a different way? Now, I know if we're not careful, we can make that to excuse sin, and I'm not trying to do that, but this is clearly seeming to indicate that God has a purpose in this. Job was a perfect and upright man. Well, you don't see that said about a lot of people by God. He's perfect upright. And yet God allowed Satan, permitted Satan, and limited Satan to oppress Job. Why? Because at the end of the book of Job, Job was a better man. What a wonderful story. At the end of the book, Job was a better man. I mean, his kids were dead, but hey, he was a better man. So if God kills your kids, hey, hey it's all good because it's to make you better. I'm not, not your kids because they're dead, but to make you better. Like, do we, ah, sometimes I don't know if we hear ourselves. Peter said, he said, you need to have joy and rejoice in your various trials if need be. You go through these trials and tribulations. Do you realize there's necessary trials and tribulations? It's necessary. It is the law of antagonism. It is God's way of waking us up to ourselves and to Him. It is the negative power and oppression in our life that lets us see ourselves as we really are. To put the squeeze on us. To where we think. God's going to come pouring out, but all of a sudden the devil comes pouring out. Amen? And it's amazing. It's, it's a, I, I'm reminded of how people talk about how they, they're working on their faith. They say, well, you know, my faith is growing. <laughs> Good question. Someone in the chat just asked, uh, so Job... So Job got better than perfect and upright. Yeah, he got more perfect. He got perfecter. He got uprighter. <laughs> he got more perfect, more upright. But hey, and all it cost him was 
all of his material wealth and all the the lives of his children. Hey, that that I mean, wouldn't it worth it? I mean, if if you could choose now, come on, this this is a hard question, and 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 I don't even mean this sarcastically. Hey, you want to be better off spiritually? God kills your family. You okay with that? Because the way we preach Job is like, hey, Job should have been happy. Hey, I'm more, I'm better. I'm more spiritual. And, and, and I can go visit my kids' graves, uh, you know, every other Sunday. Christians, we so, it's like we take these stories in the Bible and we, it's like we go to work on, on get all the paintbrushes out and we paint over it and we, and we try to reshape it and recolor it to, it's like, oh, how wonderful it Some of these stories leave us really, really struggling. And I just want to acknowledge the struggle. I do believe God is sovereign. I do believe God led them in Deuteronomy 8. I do believe God is involved, but that involvement raises questions. We're dealing with temptation. We all, we are all tempted and every day constantly to sin and we constantly fail and we constantly sin. What is God's involvement in that? If God is involved in saying, I allowed it, I didn't stop it. I didn't prevent it because it's ultimately for you being sifted. It's ultimately for you to become more perfect. It's ultimately for you to become more upright. Well, then. Do we treat sin as some great thing that brings shame or humiliation, or do we see it as a stepping stone to us becoming better? And if we are, to, and how are we to view it? It raises serious questions in dealing with temptation and how to understand it. Because when you study temptation, you have to also be acknowledging the failure we're going to encounter in dealing with it. In Christ, we don't fail positionally, but practically. I'm getting bigger faith. I, 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 I'm going I'm to build up my faith. And it's amazing. The first problem that hits them, it wipes them out. And I could almost picture them. When the oppression comes, the adversity hits them, they're looking for that faith. <laughs> where is that faith? Well, where did I put it? I knew I had it here in my pocket somewhere. Where's that faith? But when the squeeze is put on, they realize that they didn't have anything but religion or a couple of nice outlines that they got off of a video, amen, or a couple of good devotional books that made them feel like I'm ready for anything. It was Peter who said, I'm willing to go with you even to death, but denied him three times before the rooster crowed. If we could ever get our heart around this truth that the Wilderness University is not some Ivy League university. Amen? It's the backside of a desert. It has hardship. It has poverty. It has hunger. And it's all in the will of God. Verse 4 says you didn't have to change your clothes. I've preserved the ones you had. Thank God it's got limits. Oh, you had to walk and journey for 40 years in a hot desert. and Your legs got tired, but your feet didn't swell. <laughs> Amen. Now I'm too young to appreciate that. 
but it sure sounded good. Listen to me, friend. God is not going to hurt you. God is not going to hurt you? Now wait, if God controls every adversity that's ever come into my life, but he's not going to hurt me? Well, you got you to gotta tell me what you mean by hurt. You got to define what you mean by hurt. You've got to define it. You've got to. If I just go through my own life, the abuse that I experienced, my mom dying when I was young, my father dying of cancer, a horrible seizure disorder as a result of what happened to me in the military, but he's never going to hurt me. He's got to, he's got to clarify what he means by never hurt you. Children being raped, abuse. I mean, all the, I mean, we could go on and on and on and on and on. Like, what do you mean he's never going to hurt you? Never going to hurt you. Let, let's see if he explains. God is not going to hurt you. Trust him. He knows how far he needs to take you to trust him. He knows how much adversity it's going to take to get you to be like him. Embrace it. He's not going to hurt you. He doesn't explain what he means. He knows how far he's going to have to take you to get you to trust in him. So, hey, hey, the reason you're being beaten and abused, the reason you're being beaten and raped is because God knows he's got to take you that far to get you to become more like him. What? And like, how do we not hear ourselves in the Christian world of what we say? And count it all joy. But be prepared that he's going to that he's going to take you farther than you ever thought you could go. He may keep you longer than you ever thought you could stay. But one day you're going to graduate. You're going to walk out of that wilderness. And your faith will have been enlarged. They walked out of the wilderness and completely disobeyed. They walked out of the wilderness and completely turned their back on God. <laughs> what are you talking about? They, 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 their, their, their level of obedience only lasts for a short, a short period of time. Or should I say the capacity to trust him will have been enlarged. And you'll look back and say it was worth it all. Adversity was my best friend. How about you today, friend? 
How are you facing your life? How are you facing your problems? Does the Lord find you complaining? All right, someone just posted a question. Or not really a question. Yeah, I think there's a question. It's a question mark at the end. If adversity is good for us, why wouldn't God put every Christian through the same amount of adversity and make us all more spiritual? Does the amount of adversity uh, experienced depends on how bad and untrusting I am? According to him, it would. It would be. Hey, God knows how much you need. So see, I, I was, tr- I was obviously complete trash and garbage. I was so bad that God just brought everything in on my life to get me to where I need to be. But other people, like you, we see the people who don't adversity, they're more spiritual than you. And, the, and, but he said the people who go through the most adversity are the mo- most spirit. So I'm trying to follow the logic because he talked about typically the people you see who are the most spiritual are the people who've gone for the, through the greatest adversity. So if someone hasn't gone through great adversity, that would seem to imply they can't be very spiritual. So meaning, why are, why the people, because of adversity, God will give you as much adversity as he needs to get you to where you need to be spiritually. Well, then you're, then there should be no, I, I don't understand, like then, then I, I'm trying to follow, I'm trying to follow that. Yeah. And right. He says it's kind of both ways, really. Right. Hey, if you look, God knows how much suffering and, and trial and difficulty you need to make you spiritual. And only the spiritual people that he seems to realize are people who have gone through great adversity. So meaning that they, they needed the adversity to get where they are. But then what about the people who are not going through adversity? Then they're not spiritual. So then why wouldn't God bring the, that level of adversity? God only wants some people to, God only wants some people to be certain level spiritual and not others. Like, I don't, I don't know. It just, it just becomes a convoluted mess in trying to process it all. But my thing is, look at all of their adversity. Look at all the adversity Moses experienced. He doesn't even make it into the promised land. Look at all the adversity that they they do. They're going to end up, all of Israel's going to end up in captivity. They're going to end up in constant cycle of, of, of being subjected to someone and God having to deliver them over and 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 over again. Sin, 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 sin. Are you grumbling? Are you looking at it from man's wisdom and understanding? Are you trying to call in the legalese and the professionals of this world to solve your problems? I got an answer for you today. The answer that you need to be searching for is found in God. He's the biggest problem you've got. And he's a good problem to have. Because he's going to see to it that he solves it. Are you willing? Are you willing? There's a lot of dropouts in this university. They don't want to stay the course. It's not what they bargained for. They thought it was going to be a bed of roses. Somebody promised them health, wealth, and prosperity. Listen, friend. 
God's promising you something better than health, wealth, and prosperity. He's promising you a glorious relationship with Him for all eternity. And the only way I can get that glorious relationship with Him is to suffer? So my relationship with Him is dependent on the suffering I endure. I thought my relationship with him was based on the suffering he endured. This life is going to be worth it. It'll be worth every problem, every pain, every trial, every adversity, every oppression, every encounter with Satan, every negative thing that you'll face. It'll be worth it all. You can count it as joy because God's in control. Now, there's another group of people here this morning. There is the group of people here today that are being oppressed and filled with adversity, not because God is enlarging them and correcting them. It's because they have totally abandoned God and they don't live for Him and they don't trust Him and they don't serve Him and so the devil's having a heyday a field day he can do with you whatever he wants you're his child thankfully God's going to limit him still by his mercy thank God for that but I tell you what all you're doing is wasting years and wasting trials and wasting lessons Because you're not looking at them through the eyes of God. You ought to turn it around today. Some of you in here need to be saved. You need to give your life to Christ. There's several in here today that if you walked out of here, your life would be just as filled with trouble as the rest of ours. The only difference would be you would have no hope. You would have no comfort. There would be no good news. So God is in control of adversity, but whether a believer or an unbeliever, you're going to face adversity, but for the unbeliever, there's no purpose in said adversity, but you're a child of the devil. So the devil's bringing the adversity, but God's limiting the adversity. But why would Satan try to put, why would Satan bring adversity into the, into his children? Well, Satan would have to have, is Satan just like, I want to torture my children. Like, he has no purpose in it. Right? It's like, so if Satan, so Satan is the one torturing the unbeliever and God limits Satan in torturing the unbeliever, or I'm sorry, bringing trials into, so Satan brings trials into the life of the unbeliever. God controls the limits of those trials. God brings trials into the life of the believer. God has a purpose in his trials where Satan, there is no purpose. But why would Satan want to bring trials into the life of his children, which could possibly then make them turn to God? Why wouldn't he give them health, wealth, and prosperity so that they would be happy so that he could then have them for eternity? It seems like that would be counterintuitive to his strategy, right? No light at the end of the tunnel. No glory at the end of the adversity. 
Please don't leave here that way. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Let Him take charge. Let Him be Lord. Serve Him. Serve Him. Say unto Him, God, I am a sinner. I'm lost. I understand that. I believe that. And I deserve all the punishment of hell. And we do. But friend, if you'll ever come to grips with that and cry out for mercy and say, God, but I know that you died on the cross for my sin and bow your knee and accept Him as Lord and Savior of your life, listen to me, friend. Your life won't be without problems. But your life will be with a purpose from here on out. And we'll stop right there because that's the end. I mean, I mean, he's, he's just going into the invitation. There's his approach to Deuteronomy chapter 8. You can, you can just add that to our study on Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4. I would challenge you to contrast that with what we did for three hours on Sunday. I think my approach was radically different. It raises serious theological problems and issues. I would love for you to struggle through them. If you if you come up with a list of questions that you struggle with after listening to that, please send them to me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. And if I need to turn the microphone on later, whenever, and deal with it, we will. But right now, my stomach is growling. I need food. So I'm going to go get some food. And uh, then try to figure out what the plan is for tonight. Do some other things. Try to have a good afternoon. I hope this was somewhat beneficial. I do apologize for the continuity. It kind of got mixed up with the other stuff, but it's all a part of our journey on the subject of temptation, looking at it hopefully in a way that you, I guarantee you, no other, I don't think any other ministry is going to look at it in the way we've looked at it. So hopefully you'll be grateful for that. You'll be, uh, you've benefited from it. And, uh, we will definitely not, we, trust me, we will not leave Deuteronomy 6 and Matthew 4, uh, you know, untouched. We will get to that as well. But uh, this kind of just concludes our work on Deuteronomy chapter 8. And uh, hopefully you've, you've found something beneficial in all of this. Thanks for listening. You can contact me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. And uh, well, hopefully if everything works out tonight, 7 p.m., we'll be live streaming, most likely well, I don't know. You may get the Song of Solomon book overview, or you may get Deuteronomy 6 and Matthew 4. I've got to make a decision. Thanks for listening. God bless.